media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. As you're seated this morning, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. This is one of those passages that when you just look at it on the surface, seems a little bit strange. And I would be the first to tell you that um, uh, if we had five different pastors this morning that came and were to preach this passage, they could all take a different angle on this and all be accurate to the word, I, I think, because there's a lot of complexity here. It's uh, certainly a passage about faithfulness of, of God in our prayers. Uh, we see that as uh, Jesus has some teaching there. Certainly has a look at um, uh, the zealousness of Christ against those things that make a mockery of what his father is about and what his kingdom is about. There's a lot of different ways. And so we're just going to kind of let the, the, as we try to do, let the, the passage speak for itself. But this is where, again, uh, expository preaching, kind of going through the word helps us because now we know the background. And even if you've missed a couple weeks, you, you kind of see the setup. This is the last week of Jesus' life. Mark and his gospel has had an urgency to get here because he's so ready to tell the gospel hope that we have. And uh, last week as we looked at on the 4th of July, Palm Sunday, you know, or what we usually call Palm Sunday. And I don't know about you, but I had several conversations afterwards about, man, we could preach that every 4th of July, that it really is because it's this ultimate need, desire that we have for freedom. And it's, you know, this the basis of that whether it's uh, expressed through nationalism or different things like that, pride in country, pride in family, and, and this uh, joy that we would have there, this freedom that we so desire really comes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, and the 4, in the fall, and that God had created us to have this kind of uh, perfect relationship with him, and yet we rebelled and we chose to go a different way. And ever since then, we have been struggling with freedom. That freedom now has come back to us in the form of what Christ has done for us and bring us back to a holy God. So when we begin to understand all the complexities of what we call this Passion Week, we come upon a story uh, that seems a little bit out of place. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. It says, On the following day, now what had happened the day before? Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a colt, and they cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And so we looked at all that last week. So it looks like a really high point of the ministry. I can almost promise you from the, the vignettes that we see of the disciples that they're kind of elbowing one another. Hey, it's finally time. It's finally time. Look, people are responding. The kingdom is here. And so they kind of have, I think that they're, they're kind of giddy about this. And it doesn't seem like Christ is so giddy if that can be used in a biblical sense. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. That is, Jesus was hungry. And seeing the distance of fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. Now, we begin to see this, and we, you know, we begin to wonder, well, Jesus was hungry? Well, yes, he was fully God, but he was also fully man. He, he, allowed himself, he very much became uh, one. The, the, in Hebrews it says that in every way he made himself like us so that he could be this sacrifice and, and fullness of that. So, so he did experience hunger. 
And so we see this, and you know, we begin to see that he goes over to a fig tree. A fig tree is probably a little bit bigger than you would think. It's not just this little bush. Can we show that, that next picture there? And it's, it's, you know, they can grow 10, 15, 20 feet high. They're kind of big. And in season, they have green leaves, and they start off with these little green um, figs that over time get more of the familiar of what we're familiar with. They become brown, and they become ripe. And that's when most people would eat them. And it says that it was not the season for figs, even though when the green leaves are out, usually they already had these buds on those. And even though these were a little bit more bitter than the figs when they came into uh, full season, you could still eat those. And so this is plausible that Jesus says this. You know, Jesus isn't having to refer to the farmer's almanac. He's not going, you know, I just thought that they'd be ready by now. Jesus is pretty aware. This is his creation. And so instead of kind of figuring that out, it makes us even that much more curious. Okay, he goes over to this tree. It does have leaves on it. They should have at least had these little buds, and yet he finds no fruit. Is this an agricultural story? I see a lot of people saying no, and you're exactly right. This is an object lesson. Have you ever taught kids? Yeah. Or even, uh, you know, like in the sermon, sometimes they'd have the children's sermon as part of their worship. Have you ever been in a church that did that? I, I kind of never liked those because they would never remember the pastor's sermon, but they would remember the children's sermon. You know, hey, remember when he lit that candle and it wouldn't go, you know. Hey, they remember all of those things. Well, why do we use object lessons? Why does God, you know, uh, give us parables? Why did Jesus use these different styles of teaching? Because he wants to communicate truth. But let me say right up front, this is not about diagnosing the proper agricultural season for figs. Has really very little to do with that, if nothing at all. Jesus, I do believe, is hungry. He sees that fig tree. He goes over there. And look what it says in verse 14. And he said to it, may, uh, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard that. So uh, Peter later calls it a curse, that he curses this tree. I don't know about you, but all of a sudden, if we're just kind of reading this through, we don't really maybe know about how Israel is referred to or symbolic of the fig in the Old Testament. And this is part of their victory, and this is part of their, uh, as they would have victory, the fig was representative of that. And we see, I could give you just a long laundry list of uh, Old Testament passages that, that make that reference. But if you didn't know that, you would think that maybe Jesus is kind of like a spoiled child. I mean, I'm sure that none of our kids have never done it, but I've heard that sometimes kids get upset if they don't get what they want to eat. And if we've, is Jesus experienced that? Did he just walk, wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Uh, better question, can Jesus be moody? Because this is kind of in a bad mood. How long, for, for those that are married, okay, I realize not everybody's married here, but for those who are married, how long did it take you to kind of discern for your spouse that, oh, this is going to be a challenging day? Did that come early on? <laughs> you know, is it one of those things you're going, man, it took me 20 years to figure that out? Or was it something you're going, you know, in the first couple of weeks, I kind of said this is going to be at least start off with a good day or a bad day. It can change. But you began to discern moods. Because why? We're moody people. We have highs and lows. We just sang a song. You know, and blessings, and you know, there's days that are heavy and burdensome. 
And so we live in this broken world that is ever-changing, and so we kind of respond to that. Is that the case for Jesus? I think not. I think not. I don't think he's moody. I think every bit of this is a response to the bigger picture because this is not an agricultural story. This is not a story about a guy who's hungry, who wanted some food, and he went over to a tree and he couldn't find that. This is a spiritual illustration, an object lesson that Christ has given us of a bigger picture of what's going on with the nation of Israel. It's not that he's unfamiliar with the seasons of harvest. In fact, part of my understanding of that, have you, do you remember the term that we've used as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark, the Markian sandwich? Have you heard me refer to that too? Where, where Mark takes two different events and he kind of sandwiches them together. Like we would make a sandwich, we'd put bread, then we'd put meat or something or some vegetables, and then we'd put another slice of bread. Mark does that in a literary style often throughout the Gospel of Mark. And he does it because these he's not just trying to condense it and give us the Reader's Digest version. He's not trying to say, How's the, what's the fastest way I can tell this story? He does that when stories, passages, truths go together. And haven't we seen that time and time and time again? Where Mark purposely takes this story, this story, this event, and all three could stand on their own merit, and yet when we preached them together, when we looked at them in context, we said, wow, look at the depth of what Christ, uh, Mark is trying to tell us about Christ and about the kingdom of God. This is one of those occasions, because look what happens in verse 15. Okay, they're leaving Bethany. That's where they spent the night. They had been in Jerusalem before. It's about three miles away. They, they become, they come back and it says they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Okay, does he have a thing about birds? I'm not trying to be silly here, but if you're just reading this, and you're really not reading in context, and you just kind of come. Doesn't it seem like Jesus is really having a bad day? I mean, first he curses a tree, and now he goes in there and he starts turning tables over and disrupting the, the whole environment of the temple. You have to understand the temple is pretty big, especially this Gentile court, the court of Gentiles, is pretty huge. And it says that he went through. Go look in Matthew's passage and go look in Luke's passage and you get this insinuation that he just didn't come to one or two tables and kind of turns them over. He goes through the temple and folks, there, there is commotion. Is he just having a really bad day? I mean, look at verse 16. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, if you're not scratching your head yet, we might really entertain that Jesus is just really having a bad day. Uh, this is the only destructive miracle of Christ. It's only the one where you see where something is actually destructive. That is, the cur- when he curses the tree. And so how do we even begin to grasp this and apply this? Well, I personally don't think that this is the reaction of a moody savior. I don't think that these are examples of the pressure getting to him in this compacted passion week. They actually fulfill prophecy. We can go to the Old Testament and we can start to link some of these things that are said here to a prophecy that when the Christ, the Messiah, is coming, that these things are going to happen. They are designed to teach spiritual truth. And here's the ultimate thing. They are to demonstrate, as we'll see next week in the passage, Christ's ultimate authority. 
Remember, at the time of Passover, we don't just have thousands, but we have hundreds of thousands of people who have gathered into Jerusalem. It is chaotic. It is bursting at the seams. The traffic was heavy. There's activity everywhere. And also keep in mind that the Jewish people are still under a sacrificial system. And so as they come to this time, this Passover, they are bringing lambs or ox. Can you imagine how bad the year must have been for you to bring an ox instead of lamb? I mean, if we're just going to equate it with size, man, I had a tough year. (laughs) So ox and lambs and goats. And for those who couldn't afford a lot, pigeons. They could could buy a bird. But they're still under this sacrificial system. And this need for sacrificial animals is there. Because let's say that you had to journey from 30 miles, 40 miles, 50 miles out. And you have three kids. Are your hands already full, Andy, with three kids? So I'm just going to buy my sacrificial animal when I get there instead of trying to keep with the goat. And here's the other thing that was kind of thrown in. Just because you brought a goat or a lamb or something that you thought was adequate for sacrifice, guess who could nullify that in a moment's notice? Oh, oh, the priest. Ah, that's not quite good enough. And then when you go out to buy, do do they have a, a, a Walmart for goats? No. You're paying the temple price. Think Six Flags. Think Braves game. $7 hot dog. Okay? Now, I'm not trying to be silly here, but this is what was really happening here. And so there's this all this confusion. There was all these things that were happening. Josephus, one of the, the early uh, historians of the, the church, wrote that in AD 65, 255,600 lambs were offered during Passover, just to give us kind of a reference. And that's just the lambs. That's not the oxen. That's not the goats. That's not birds for those that were uh, didn't have the, that much money. So all this is happening. And stay with me here. The, the people would come. They would kind of wait until they would get to the city so they can make sure that it was a qualified sacrifice. And in the midst of all this, there was a system and the system is what we would call corrupt. It was what we would call not genuine, not pure. Some of this was, they did all this in the, in the, in the court of the Gentiles. And we're going to see that there was a pronouncement, a judgment against that because they had taken up and almost, think of uh, uh, a county kind of, uh, uh, you know, this time when everybody gets together and puts all their booths out there and these different days of celebration. That's what was happening now in the temple of God. And for convenience, they had turned that section of the temple into a major money-making business. Booth after booth after booth. Sacrificial animals, religious wares. Kind of think of the opening day of Georgia football. Booth after booth where you can buy this, you can buy that. I mean, they'll stamp a G on anything. And people will buy it. Why? Because they have the fans. And so they have all this going on. And, and the, this temple is also in the Middle East. And, and we haven't had a lot of experience in the Middle East, but I think I've shared with some of you before, my sweet wife, Carly, when we were in Africa and we were in a bazaar, we were in one of these major markets and she was looking for a leather pocketbook. And one of the things that we found out is that don't go over there and pick something up because they are very aggressive in their sales techniques. And so you just don't kind of go and look and then go into the next one, even though there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds of booths. 
And finally, they had kind of gotten way too close to my wife, way too close for her comfort, and kind of, you know, I'll buy this, buy this, make you deal, make you deal. And finally, my sweet wife, it's one of the few times I've ever seen her react this way, kind of like, leave me alone. I will buy when I'm ready to buy. I say that not to pick on Middle Eastern markets, but just that's the mentality, guys. That's, that's kind of how it was. And Jesus goes into this whole thing, and he brings judgment against it. Mark eleven seventeen. And he was teaching them. Look at that first part. Look at that first phrase. And he was teaching them. What is he teaching them about? About the judgment of God, the zealousness of God, the purity of God, the holiness of God. But even now, our Savior is teaching us. It's not just a scolding. Parents, have you ever lost focus of teaching your kids because the anger was so big that it just went quite quite into a reactionary mode and you kind of forgot teaching as a part of that, uh, you know, that time? Our Savior doesn't. It, it says, and he was teaching them and saying, it is, not, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Two Old Testament prophecies. One, Isaiah 56, 7. The other one, Jeremiah 7, 11. I mean, we begin to see all these Old Testament things that are Christ is fulfilling now. And so he uses these two terms, and he doesn't just kind of bring them out of nowhere. He's actually using Old Testament prophecy to say, this was predicted to happen. He's not just being a little grumpy. He's being righteous, folks. Because all that God had ordained, and all God had even predicted and prophesied and, and, and was holding the nation of Israel accountable for, they've fallen away. It's actually not the first time that Jesus cleared the temple. Do you know that he actually cleared it another time? You go back in the early chapters of John, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. He clears it then, and that's many think that this is a separate occasion. It was John 2. It's early in the ministry. Verse 17 describes Jesus' demeanor as zeal. The Greek word there means eaten up, burning up in a flame. He looks at this darkness and he turns on holy light to expose what's happening here. Now you can only imagine that the temple officials, uh, the priests who are in charge, who have allowed all these things, and they were actually making a lot of money off of all of this that was going on, that this is upsetting to them. I don't care how holy you are. I don't care how holy you think you are. When somebody turns on the light to your dark ways, isn't there a natural pride reaction? I don't care if it's your loving spouse and they're doing it for your edification. I don't care if it's parents who are doing it because they want to speak truth and love. There's something about us, it's called our fallenness, our sinfulness, that when somebody exposes wrong in my life, is my first reaction normally, well, thank you so much. Or is it justification or, you know, trying to, to turn it to somebody else? Well, you're not so great yourself. Isn't that kind of how we try to justify things when light is brought to dark ways of our lives? And Jesus does that. He, he, he brings light in here, this, this holy zeal, this judgment against what they are doing, 
And verse 18 says, And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, and they should have feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. But please understand this, guys. This humble Lamb of God, who's ready to lay down his life for the for mankind and for the sins, he is the Lion of Judah. But please never confuse that in your mind. Please, please never let somebody sell you out on a Jesus who's just kind of some spiritual patsy. This best friend, best friend, closer than a brother, loves me beyond anything I can imagine. But he is holy God. And he is zealous for righteousness. He doesn't just have kind of, you know, that kind of budget. He is zealous for righteousness and anything that is offense to the Father. The lamb and the lion. And we so want the lamb. We preach the lamb. (laughs) We need the lamb. But let us make much of the lion. In a world where we have tried to water down this zeal for righteousness, that there is a Savior who took great offense at those things that offended the Father. You see, that's where a lot of people do mess up about Jesus. Again, they just want this friend. He's my best friend. Personally, guys, I think it's kind of sacrilegious. He's creator God. He's savior of the world. Nothing has been made that wasn't made by him. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And that doesn't mean that somehow he can't be my best friend. No, it means all that much more that me, who was not seated at the table, now has been invited in because of his finished work to sit at his table and to be called sons and daughters of holy God. You see... Let's look at the complexity and let's look at the fullness of it because when we see the fullness of it, it becomes much more profound, much more amazing than anything that we can do when we just say, man, I got a best friend. His name is Jesus and he really just loves me a lot. I'm not trying to be trivial. I just want to be biblical. And this is one of those times that we see the Bible pointing out the lambness of Christ, if we can use that term, I just invent. Preachers always invent new terms. Lambness. I bet it's not in the dictionary, but I just made it up. So we're going to go with lambness, but also the lioness. Oh, that's going to be confusing. But there's the lamb. There's the lion here. Okay, you're tracking with me. I think you know what I mean. He is the lion. He's the lamb. Anything less than the lion and the authority, we have left scriptural truth. But he is the lamb and he's the sacrifice for our sins. John the Baptist called Jesus from the very beginning in John 129. He said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is profound biblical truth. It's from the very heart of the gospel. First Peter 1, Peter says it this way in verse 18 and 19. For you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He is the lamb of God. Let's make much of that. But please make much that he is the lion of Judah. Make much that he is 
the one who is zealous for righteousness and holiness. And when we understand the fullness of all that, and, and just the other day, Daniel and I in discipleship, we we're looking at the different attributes of God, and one of the things that we see week after week after week is this, that He's the fullness of all these things. One doesn't, He doesn't like, one day kind of come up in love, and the next day kind of come up in, in, you know, this truthfulness. He is the fullness of every one of these different attributes. If you read on to verse 20, they go back and, and they pass by the fig tree. Okay, so, so we, we, we are in the temple. We, we see that there's a kind of a, um, uh, a holy anger, a righteous anger against that. You know why? Because even the, the temple priests, they were profiting. Well, what was happening? I mean, it's really kind of, it's sad, but it's kind of interesting. In order to pay your taxes and to do all that. Every male after uh, over 20 had to pay the, their taxes and they had to, to give an offering in the church. And in order to do that, you had to do that with kind of temple money. You couldn't just bring Roman coin. You couldn't bring Greek coin because that was idolatrous because it had Caesar on it. And so they did an exchange. How convenient. And yet there was a markup in that exchange. Can you imagine if I said, okay, we're going to take up an offering this morning. Now, we just put put our offerings back there. We don't pass the plate. But let's say that we're going to take up an offering. But I said, but guys, it has to be in cornerstone money. You know, because so, so you need to trade out your dollar bills, your 20s and your 50s. You have to trade that out. And, and I only gave you 75 cents on the dollar because I pocketed the rest. Would you think highly of me? Thank you for that. <laughs> no, we'd be, wouldn't you be offended? I mean, you've worked a system to your own good. That's what was happening here. This is the offense that Christ has, one of the offenses that he has. But it all comes back to this bigger picture of Israel. Mark eleven twenty, And they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered to its roots. Interesting, Matthew says that it kind of happened all in the same day. There's some things, if you read Matthew's account, it seems like it all happened in a very quick time frame. But Peter comes out and he begins to, he knows, isn't this the tree that, that Jesus cursed? And it wasn't dead, folks. It was dead, dead. You know the difference? I mean, there's dead, and then there's dead, dead. And this tree was dead, dead. I mean, something that could only happen over months, if not years, and, and this is what they see, and, and they're kind of astonished. Now, what does all of this mean? This is a judgment against the people of Israel. Fig tree, representative of Israel. They should have at least had some fruit because of all that Christ had, uh, all the Old Testament prophecies that had prepared them, and yet there was no fruit. The hosannas that they had just the day before were pretty empty because they were not looking for that spiritual king that we talked about last week, but they were looking for an earthly king. They kind of just missed the boat. Now they go into the temple and he sees this, this hypocrisy. The very people that were in charge that were supposed to be the, the spiritual leaders are actually funneling money into their own pockets and getting quite rich. 
And so this is a, a pronouncement of judgment on the things that were happening. For the nation of whole, these people that were called out, the, the people of Israel, and for the system that was set up. So what do we learn from this? We're not under that system anymore. You didn't have to bring a goat or a lamb or anything today. You know, what does this mean to us? I think it causes for a gut check. Is it easy to get into the ritual part of Christianity, go to church, kind of do this, kind of do that? Even your quiet time, can, can there be a ritual nature to that? And can there be a repetition that happens without real fruit as a result? And we're all going to have days like that. But we are not to have a life like that. I mean, there's going to be days that in your quiet time, but you can't remember five minutes later, what did I even read this one? I can't even think of the subject. There's going to be days like that. I don't know that this is what that pronouncement is. I think what it is is that we would have this air that we are really these God-fearing, God-loving people, and yet there is not the fruit of relationship of God in our lives. There's not the spiritual fruit of us having hearts that are changed and lives that are changed. We're not caring more for our brothers as we would in a life that was changed. We're, we're judgmental rather than compassionate to sinners. Do we exhibit a fruit of a life that has been changed by a holy God and a redeeming Christ? That's the judgment here. And so while this happened 2,000 years ago, and we can put it in place in time, and we can see Christ's reaction, folks, I, I want you to know that it has application to our lives today. I mean, why did... Christ call the spiritual leaders whitewashed tombs. Hey, you look really good on the outside, but you're decaying and, and you're, you're ugly on the inside. Isn't it amazing to you that, that the very ones that Christ seems to, to have the most compassion for are what that society would call the most sinful? tax collectors and prostitutes, lepers. Those were not of the spiritual class. This was not the spiritual elite. And yet we see Christ just running to them and having compassion. And yet when we look at the harshest words of Christ during his ministry as it's recorded, every single time it is to the religious elite, those who think much of themselves because of some kind of position that they have you know, that they have attained, but they do not have that that position with God. I believe that's one of the lessons. This is, there's many lessons here, but I, I believe that's the one for us today. If we're looking for application, do we examine our hearts and say, okay, am I just kind of following a mode? Am I just kind of in a repetition? Or is there evidence? Is there really a change that has been brought because I've been redeemed by a holy God? I would believe that hypocrisy is probably the, the one of the largest stenches in God's nostrils. And yet, let's be honest, to some level, aren't we all a little bit hypocritical? And so that's why we come to God and go, okay, God, will you just show me my heart? 
David's prayer, show me my heart. What a dangerous prayer. (laughs) Do you really want to pray that? Because what if he does begin to take light and shine in the darkness? What if he does begin to expose things in your life that are not just really, they, they just don't run with the gospel? I can tell you, as discomforting as that could be, that is glorious. That is true compassion. If we didn't have the good news of Jesus Christ, it would be so defeating. But this is where the cross, this is the good news, guys, that we are those rebellious ones. We are those hypocritical ones. But when we come running to the cross of Christ and this, this Lamb of God, then we can sit there under the, the liberty of the Lamb and in the, the, the power of the Lion and not be afraid. It's what we see in Revelation. It's kind of the, the future prophecy. The lion and the lamb are going to sit down together. They don't show that on National Geographic right now, do they? We kind of we know the end of that story, the lion and the lamb. One's called Supper. And yet this is the miracle of salvation. This is the, this is the beauty of the gospel. One of my biggest struggles this morning is, is, you know, Bobby, did you communicate? Did you? And I so trust the Holy Spirit to, to bring this message to each one because it is kind of, there, there's five different ways you can preach. There's a lot of different ones. But here's what the Holy Spirit began to just really keep on telling me, Bobby. And he told it to Bobby. He didn't say it to Cornerstone. He told it to Bobby. Bobby, examine your life for hypocrisy. I, I, I desire Authenticity. And if it takes brokenness to get to that authenticity, I I make much of that. And this morning, God makes much when we come to that place in our lives and we examine our life and we just look for the purity. Are we truly just loving Christ, serving Christ? It's not about works. It's about a changed heart and a changed life because of that and not just going through the motions. Different application for each one of us here. The last couple of weeks, um, we've had folks come down and pray at the end of the service. and I, I wanted to give a word about that this morning. Uh, I've been fortunate to be in a lot of churches. Church, I, my, my home church growing up, man, there were more people at the altar than there were in the pews sometimes at the end of the service. Can you pray to Holy God right where you are? Yes, you can. And God makes much of that. So why do people sometimes come up and pray? Sometimes it's because they need that. They, they need that for their own lives to kind of put one foot, left foot, right foot there, just because, okay, I, God, I'm coming to you. Even though he'll come right there to you, okay? And I want to explain that because maybe you don't grow up in a, you haven't grown up in a church culture and you, you don't know about that. You've wondered, is that just, you know, something... The altar is open for anybody to pray. Now, this morning, I'm not expecting 50 people to come down because I try to explain. I just want you to kind of know and not be bewildered by different things like that because we are to be a house of prayer. And you can pray right where you are, and God hears you in your seat right now. But I just know that there's been sometimes I've been compelled by the Spirit of God Himself to come as a makeshift altar before him. Okay, God, I'm bringing this to you. This is a heavy load and I just want to leave it right here. And sometimes I need that physical part for that spiritual endeavor. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good. 
I just, I just wanted to clear that up because I just, I mean, nobody has to ask me about it or anything like that. I just want you to notice that the beauty of that, that sometimes God just compels us to do that. And it should be much more the norm than it is the abnormal. Let's pray this morning. Father God, how do you tackle such a mysterious word, Father? <laughs> there, there's so many things happening in this, and yet, Father, I, I, I love that Mark chose to, to group it all together because I do think that there's a profound message that was timely in Jesus' time. A judgment against the nation of Israel that you had blessed and blessed and blessed, and yet, Father, they find themselves in a very hypocritical state, looking very religious and yet not having changed hearts and lives. And, Father, we know that we are susceptible to that. That, Father, even this day, 2,000 years later, that, Father, how easy it is to get into a religious mode and do religious things and not have a changed heart and mind. Father, we need Jesus. He's your one and only provision for changed heart and changed lives. The only answer to a redeemed life forgiveness to be justified before a holy God so today Father we make our cry out that Jesus is enough that he is complete we thank you that he is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world for our need but Father we thank you this morning that he is also the lion of Judah and one day Father one day we will see that majesty And we will bow to that majesty. So, Father, help us. Never forget, Father, the fullness of who you are and how this has been brought forth in the life of Christ. You are, Father, lion in the lamb. We proclaim this morning, Father, the sufficiency of Christ and Christ alone. Not religious church attendance. Not even reading the Bible, Father, even though that's all good. Christ is our hope. He is the sufficient one. And Father, today we make much of him. Thank you, Father, for your provision for a lamb and a lion. As we pray in the power of his name, amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.